You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Hi, I'm Ashley Henderson. Uh, My husband's Chad Henderson. We have two boys, uh, Bradley and Case, and we are part of the Bertrand Community Group. Um, I'm going to be reading in Genesis 3, uh, 14 through 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it you shall not eat of it cursed the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles is It shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of of it you were taken, for the dust, and to the dust you shall return. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the God shall stand forever. Good morning, testing. It works. That's a good start. Uh, My name is Daniel. Um, If you don't know me, I am a member here at Redeemer Odessa. I also co-lead a community group with Scotty Satterwhite. Um, And Tanner gave me the great honor of speaking, preaching this morning. And to be quite honest with you, I haven't done this in several years, and so I'm very nervous. So... (laughs) Please just bear with me um, in the spirit of holiday gratitude and and all of that. Please just be patient with me. So we all just celebrated Thanksgiving, and we all know what we did. We gorged our faces with food, and hopefully we had some fun family times. We watched some football, and if you're a Texas fan like me, we whooped up on on the Red Raiders, so I just had to throw that disclaimer in there for Tanner. But also what happens is you, you get Black Friday, right? People go berserk over the latest steals, deals, and thrills. And it gets even better. We come back to Monday, which is tomorrow, and we have Cyber Monday. And the whole point of this is gearing up for Christmas, getting gifts for people, and uh, just getting geared up for the holiday season. So we're going to be talking about Advent this morning. And you may ask what Advent is, and I'm glad that you did. So Advent refers to the anticipated arrival of someone significant. So if you claim to be a Christian, the coming weeks and the the month leading up to Christmas should be full of eager expectation and a longing for what's to come. And that is the, the birth of Christ, our Lord Jesus, who arrived on this earth around 2,000 years ago. We are now living in between the two Advents, his birth and his return, which we know is his second coming. 
So today we're going to be looking at the first gospel promise that's recorded in the Bible. And surprisingly enough, we don't have to look far because we get to Genesis 3, and it only takes three chapters for humanity to completely and utterly mess up God's plan. Um, And so lucky for us, there's only two preceding chapters. In elementary school, we all learned it's important to look at the context of what you're reading. So let's take a quick recap of the first two chapters of Genesis 1 and 2. So in the first chapter, Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It didn't stop there. He didn't just create the heavens and the earth. He created the sun, the moon, the stars, land, vegetation. He created light. He created all creatures, whether they be in the sea or on land. And finally, on the seventh day, he rests. The first chapter presents the creation of mankind, Adam, on the sixth day as the utter highlight of all creation. He formed Adam from the dust from his own hands. And he decided that uh, he wanted to, to do more with mankind uh, than the animals and all the other things that he created because man was more important. So in the second chapter, he looks in the, the creation of mankind in more detail. Uh, so the author of, in Genesis 2 describes a beautiful, self-sustaining garden that God created for Adam to work and enjoy an abundance of food. He had it. He had it all. He had all the plants, all the food that he could ask for. Uh, and all he had to do was work the fields and glorify God in his work. Um, God had compassion on Adam, and he realized that, like I said, man was more important than any of the creatures that he created before. So he decided he wanted to create a helper. The Bible calls the woman the helper for the man. So at the conclusion of chapter 2, we see God providing shelter food, and companionship to the very first couple of the world, Adam and Eve. He gives Adam one command. He says, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So now let's take a quick look at the 13 verses prior to our main text. There are several main, main events that occur in these verses that will help us deliver, or that will help us understand our main text better. And I'm calling these the temptation the fall, the dilemma, and the consequences. So remember how chapter 2 ended. Mankind was in, was in utter perfection. They had everything they needed. They had a perfect relationship with their creator God. They had a perfect relationship with each other as a spouse. But then we get into the, the bad stuff. Um, so... Let's read Genesis. If you have your Bible, um, I didn't throw that disclaimer in there. If you, have, if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Tanner will, will bring one to you. Uh, let's, let's look at Genesis 3, 1 through 5. And I'm going to read, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, surely. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, 
Oh, that's, I'm going to need to stop there. Sorry. Um, so in the first verse, we are introduced to a serpent. And the Bible describes the serpent as crafty. Well, in the Hebrew language, crafty translates to prudent or wise. So you could be asking yourself, like I asked myself when I prepared for this, how does a serpent, a serpent have the capability to be wise? And also, how does a serpent have the capability to talk? And those are valid questions, right? We don't ever see a snake lying in the ground and it just talks to us, right? That's not normal. So the wisdom is not coming directly from the serpent, but indirectly from the spirit of Satan. Satan manifested himself into this snake, and he was speaking through the snake as he began to tempt Eve. We see in the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel that Satan was a former worship leader in heaven, most likely. He had it all. He was, he was a, a great, mighty angel in God's kingdom. Uh, but, but because he wanted to be like God, and because of his pride, um, God kicked him out of heaven, and we know him as Satan. So because he fell, his desire is for each one of us to fall too uh, in our sin. So in this passage, we see his supernatural wisdom on display as he deceives and manipulates Eve through the serpent with one simple question. Did God really say? Did God really say that you should eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? There's two interesting points that I realized when I was preparing for this. When you look at Genesis 2, God created man. He did not create woman yet. He didn't create woman. um, No, I'm sorry. In Genesis 1, God created man. He didn't create woman until Genesis 2. Um, Which means when God gave Adam the command to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it most likely, I mean, Eve, Eve is not mentioned in that. Eve is not mentioned as one that directly received that command from God. So it could be that, that Adam relayed that message to her. We don't know. Or it could also be that God told Eve later, and we just don't have that recorded in scriptures. Another interesting point that I realized when the serpent approached Eve is that he went to the helper. He went to the what the Bible describes as the weaker vessel, which is the woman. God created Adam to be the head of the family, and it's ironic that he chose, he bypassed God's design for marriage, and he went straight to the woman instead of going to the man. In Satan's eyes, why would God create this beautiful tree and you can't eat from it? Why would he do that to you? How, how cruel and evil of God to do this to you? And also, even if you did eat from this tree, how in the world would you die? Well, God puts rules in place for Eve and Adam, just like he puts rules in place for each one of us in our lives. And he does that so that we can be protected. He does that so that we can enjoy an intimate, loving relationship with our Creator. Without rules, there is no point in a meaningful relationship. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Personally, I found myself believing in the lies that God's rules can be offensive or oppressive at times, but in retrospect, they're meant to be seen as a way that we can relate to him in a beautiful and intimate way. 
So how does Eve respond to this temptation? Let's take a look in the next couple of verses. Genesis six, or 3, 6 through 7. It says, So when the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it and ate. She ate the fruit. So, well, 1 John 2.16 says, For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. It's interesting that Satan uses the, this exact strategy that's in 1 John. Uh, he looks at, he, the, the, the fruit is enticing to the woman. It's, it's a desire for her. It's a desire of the flesh. It's a desire for her eyes. And it may, Satan says, if you eat of this, you'll be like God. So it makes her prideful. It makes her think that she knows more than God based on what Satan is, based on the lies that Satan is, is feeding her. So we see Eve conversing with Satan in the garden, and some theologians believe that this was the first time that Eve sinned, even before she took the fruit, because she doubted God from the very beginning. Satan's goals were successful. Satan desired for Eve to doubt God's character and to doubt his word. So she ate of the fruit. Eve believed that she had the intellectual capacity and the moral judgment to make this decision on her own to exclude God out of it. How many times do we do that? How many times do we look at a situation or a temptation or a struggle and just say, eh, I got this on my own. I'm my own God. I'll do what I want to do in this situation. That's typically what happens. And so we have to constantly remind ourselves that we are not our own God. It is God that is our, is our God. Uh, we are to obey him at all costs. There's one phrase that drives me up the wall. It is, follow your heart. It drives me nuts because... The Bible says that the heart is desperately sick and evil and wicked. Who can comprehend it? We get ourselves in trouble when we follow our hearts. And Eve and Adam realized that, that they found themselves in a major pickle, in a dilemma that was completely irreversible. One thing that Satan was correct in is that their eyes would be open. He said that. He said, your eyes will be open. But their eyes were opened in a completely different way than what uh, Eve thought her eyes would be opened in. She saw the evilness and wickedness in her heart because of her sin. They also saw that they were naked. What's interesting is they didn't realize that they were naked at all until after they sinned. So because of their sin, they began feeling sinful feelings like fear, like self-consciousness, like guilt, like shame, and they began, they began to cover themselves up with fig, fig leaves that they sowed in an attempt to cover their sin. So now in the verses 8 through 13, we find ourselves in the dilemma. So let's read from there. And it says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called on the man and said to him, Where are you? 
And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me, she made me do it. She made me eat of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So Adam and Eve hid from God in utter humiliation as a result of their sin. God asked where they were, not because he didn't know, but because he wanted to give them an opportunity to come to him, confess their sin, and repent and make things right with him. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. If you ever find yourself doubting God or thinking that God is not there with you or in your circumstances or in your situation, or you don't feel that closeness with God, maybe you've felt a closeness with God before, and it's not there right now. The the fact of the matter is that 100% of the time, it's not God's fault. It's always your fault. Um, One of my favorite hymns is Come Thou Fount, and the lyrics of that is very telling of our hearts. Um, It says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. It cannot be a more accurate depiction of our depraved hearts and Adam and Eve's depraved hearts in Genesis 3. So as I mentioned before, the Lord God gave Adam the headship and dominion over the woman in the marriage. So most people like to blame Eve for the first sin. But in reality, Adam is equally as guilty than Eve was because he was apathetic and he was passive and he didn't do anything about it. He could have stopped Eve. He could have said, no, remember what God said. Remember God's promise to us. But he didn't. Instead of owning up to his sin, he deflects the blame onto Eve. Then Eve deflects the blame onto the serpent. In our community group, we just finished a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. And in the first chapter of that book, it it talks about ways that we like to minimize sin. And one of the ways that we like to minimize sin is by blaming. Rather than owning up to our own sin and just saying, okay, I messed up, I'm in the wrong, because of our selfishness and because of our pridefulness, we like to say, well, I sinned because he did that or because she did that. That's why I sinned. That's where we find ourselves prior to our our main text. The one sinful act from Eve and then from Adam has led to a domino effect of more and more and more sin. So now finally, let's get into the verses. Uh, We can read Genesis 3.14 together. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and to dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Rather than addressing Eve and Adam first, God decided to address the serpent first because he was the the source of what happened, his evilness. Because he meticulously orchestrated this to happen, the Lord cast a curse on the serpent. Let's remember that the serpent, the, the creature that the Lord created, did nothing wrong. The serpent in and of itself, as we discussed earlier, It was the spirit of Satan that was manifested within the serpent that caused all of this trouble. 
So you may ask yourself, why would God curse this snake? Um, well, he did it to establish an everlasting reminder of Satan's humiliation and disgrace at the hands of the Lord. I want to do a quick game. I want you to raise your hand if you love snakes, if you like the look of them, if you like anything about them. I want you to raise your hand. I figured it would just be the kids. And, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing, right, that we don't like snakes. I hate snakes, for the record. Um, and I think it's interesting that snakes kind of have a bad rap, right? When we look at the fall and the story of the serpent and what he did, um, I think it's interesting that snakes in today's uh, day and age kind of hold a negative uh, reputation, So God could have stopped there with the curse of the serpent, but he continued by saying, on your belly you should go. Some theologians claim that snakes were once upright creatures because God ordered them to go onto the ground and onto their belly. In the Old Testament times, it was completely uh, gross and, and frowned upon to eat a snake because they were considered unclean. They were considered detestable, and I agree. So sending the serpent to its belly meant that they would forever spend their lives on the ground. And the Lord God confirms this by saying that they'll eat dust for, the, for all their days of their life. In the Old Testament accounts of Isaiah and Micah, we see that um, eating dust is the equivalent of total and utter defeat. So God just from the start, says that Satan will be defeated from now until eternity. This passage has garnered a new perspective of snakes for me. Every time I see one, I'm going to be reminded of God's uh, just defeat of Satan, his utter, the utter humiliation and defeat that he brought upon Satan because of what he did in the garden. This next verse, Genesis 3.15 is well known for being the first promise of redemption. An old pastor, an old English preacher, Charles Simeon, calls this verse the sum and the summary of the whole Bible. Another theologian calls this verse the Old Testament equivalent of John 3.16. In theological terms, this verse is labeled as the Proto-Evangelion. Come on. <laughs> Proto meaning first and evangelion, evangelion meaning gospel. So let's read this first uh, gospel promise recorded in the 15th verse. It says, I will put enmity between you and the between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. If you're like me, I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't know what the word enmity meant. So I did a quick Google search, and enmity means uh, conflict. It means war. It means a blood fuel, a blood uh, duel. John MacArthur believes that this is the moment of Eve's salvation. God graciously plucks her heart away from Satan's grip and grants her salvation when he says he will put enmity between the serpent and her. This is another reminder 
that our salvation is solely dependent on the Lord. It has nothing to do from what we've done or accomplished. Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except for the sin that made it possible. The hostility or the enmity will come through the line of Adam and Eve and will represent the spiritual war and the spiritual conflict between believers and unbelievers. When you take a closer look at Adam and Eve's, Adam and Eve's family, sorry, family heritage, their first two children were Cain and Abel. We know from the story of Cain and Abel, if you're aware of the Bible, if you're, if you're not, I'll, I'll tell you a brief recap. But um, Abel offered the greater blessing than his brother Cain. And so as an attempt, or because Cain was bitter towards his brother in the, gospel, in the, the offering that was given, uh, the Lord placed a curse on Cain. Personally, I believe that Cain was the seed of Satan, and Abel was the seed of Eve. And we see in Genesis 4 that Eve mentioned that God granted her another child in the wake of Abel's death so that he could preserve the righteous line. Second, the Lord pronounces hostility between Satan's offspring and Eve's offspring. Offspring in Hebrew can be translated as seed. So not only will the Lord put enmity between Eve and Satan, but he will also put enmity or hostility between Satan's seed and Eve's seed. So it's important to look at what Satan's seed is and what Eve's seed is. And we know that ultimately what Satan's seed is, is sin. Uh, that's the seed that he likes to produce the most. That's the only thing that he's good for. So when we look at, uh, when we look at biology, um, the woman's egg and the male sperm produces offspring. So in the Old Testament, the seed was solely used for the man. So why would the author of Genesis use the term seed when referring to Eve's offspring? And I, I hope that we all know the answer. Um, that's, that's Jesus. Jesus is the seed. Uh, the only reason... Uh, could be because man's seed was not involved in the specific offspring mentioned here. Eve's seed foreshadowed the virgin birth and the Davidic line that leads to Christ. Isaiah 7:14 says, "Therefore the Lord him, the Lord Himself um, will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and we and you shall call his name Emmanuel." So the, the coming Messiah would trample the head of, the, of Satan, of the serpent, and Satan would bruise the woman's seed, which would be Christ. A bruise to the heel, in retrospect, to a blow to the head is not a major, you know, it's, it's quite a minor thing when, look, when comparing, them, comparing the two. We know from Isaiah 53 that Christ was bruised for our transgressions, and he was cursed for our sins. And we also know that Satan was defeated due to Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So while only a bruise on Christ's heel is light, according to the, the scriptures, in light of Satan's inner, in, uh, injury, we must not take lightly the gravity of that bruise. 
which we will discuss in a little bit more detail towards the end. So before we transition on to Eve's judgment, we should not neglect the fact that God promised a coming Messiah that was given before his judgment was placed on, on Eve and Adam. He was so gracious in doing that and providing that promise before he provided a judgment unto them. So now let's look at the, the judgment on the woman in verse 16. It says, To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. As most of you know, me and my wife gave, or I didn't give birth, my wife gave birth to our firstborn, our daughter, Audrey, back in January. And to be honest with you, that was one of the most crazy experiences of my life, and I know for hers too. Um, I learned I learned a few things uh, during that experience. One, I had nothing to, to attribute to the birth of Audrey. All I could do was be a support system, to be there for her, hold her hand, encourage her in the best way that I know how. And also another thing that I learned was Nicole is a rock star. And ultimately, it deepened my love and appreciation for her and the hard work that she, she did in bearing Audrey. It's an interesting concept to me, because we've talked, Nicole and I have talked about this. Um, she says that she does not remember the pain in, in, in the childbirth process. And I find that interesting, uh, because... I feel like God may have, you know, just orchestrated a woman's brain to, to forget that. I don't know why. Maybe it's just his graciousness as a result of, of the, the judgment that he places on every woman, you know, from then to eternity of the pain of childbirth. Uh, it's just an interesting concept to me. Think about it. If the woman remembered the pain of her first pregnancy... Why in the world would she want to have another, another child? So it's just another uh, food for thought. Um, nevertheless, the pain women experience is the result of God's judgment. And ultimately, it's a reminder of the consequences of our sin. 1 Timothy 2.15 says, Yes, you'll be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness. This verse shows us that there is a glimmer of hope in the wake of of her punishment in the wake of the consequences of her sin, and that woman, a woman will ultimately live to bear her children. That's good news. The passage is not saying that childbearing will lead to her salvation or a woman's salvation. It's not saying that every woman that will give birth is saved, but rather it's alluding to, alluding to the preserved line of Christ through Eve. So now let's look at Adam's judgment or I'm sorry, the, the second part of the woman's judgment. The Lord says, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The second part of the Lord's judgment pronounces that a woman's desires will be contrary to that of the man's, and that he will rule over her. We know in Genesis 2, 15 through 16, that the Lord created a helper for Adam, which signifies that he is the leader over Eve. In the garden, what did Eve do? She acted independently. She did not consult Adam. She did not go to him and say, hey, what should I do? Should I do this or not? Um, ultimately, she acted on her own. And I think 
That's an important reminder of our sin today. Uh, we talked about blame shifting earlier. Ultimately, our sin is, is a result of our evil hearts. So in this passage, the Lord is reminding Eve and all of the women that the man has dominion over her in the marriage con- context, in the marriage covenant, and she must submit to his authority. While the man's role is to lead, it can be sticky at times because man will also, also fall short. Um, he will rule in ungodly ways. He will be unloving. He will not be kind. He will not be patient. Um, and so this is the conflict that we see in marriage. This a woman wanting to rule over the man and man wanting to rule over the woman in unchristlike uh, ways. It's all the results of our shared sin nature. So lastly, God places a more extensive judgment on Adam, for he made the covenant with Adam earlier in Genesis 2, and Adam broke this covenant. Breaking this covenant has greater consequences or ramifications because God gave Adam dominion over his wife. So in Genesis 3.17 it says, To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. So rather than listening to the voice of the Lord, Adam listens to his spouse. He could have questioned her. He could have stopped her. He could have spoke truth to her. But as I mentioned earlier, he was very apathetic and passive. And he just stood idly by and watched it all go down. He failed to protect her. At, uh, 1, Timothy, 1 Timothy 2, <coughs> 13 says, Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Even though Adam was not deceived by Satan, he allowed his wife to lure him into sin. We are each held independently responsible for the choices that we make, and Adam was independently responsible for his choice to eat from the tree. He's also responsible for the consequences of that. And he doesn't have the right to pass the blame on to Eve. We see in Genesis 2.15 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it in utter perfection. Adam's job was quite simple, to watch over and to guard the garden. But because of his sin, the Lord pronounces a curse upon the ground, the very thing that the Lord ordered Adam to tend to. The curse of the ground would make watching over the garden much more tedious and tiring and toiling. He will now have difficulty producing fruit or producing anything from the ground because of many factors like weeds, weather, animals, and insects. Gordon Wenham commented on this passage and said, The toil that now lies between the preparation of every meal is a reminder of the fall and is made all the more painful by memory of the readily supply available of food that was within the garden. In Genesis 3.18, it says, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Scientific studies 
have shown that thorns are actually undeveloped blossoms. And I thought that was a, an interesting fact. It's a good metaphor for what sin does to us. It stunts our development, and it stunts our growth. Um, ultimately, as a Christian, our goal is to be sanctified. And what that means is we are to gradually grow in holiness and gradually grow towards Christ. But because of sin, because of the curse, um, we are just undeveloped blossoms. Sin has tainted us, and it's um, just really stunted our growth process in many ways. So considering the curse of the ground, the Lord is still gracious towards Adam and still provides him plants to take care of him and to provide for him. He provides him food even in the midst of the curse and the judgment. Now, it won't be easy, right? The Bible says that Adam lived 930 years. So Adam toiled and toiled um, as a result of his sin and it just required a lot more burdened work as a result. In verse 19, we see God say to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That kind of seems harsh when you read it initially. It's important for us to remember that work was created pre-fall in, in order to glorify our Creator and the work that He did at creation. Adam ultimately and originally worked the garden with complete joy. But now his work, as I mentioned before, will be tarnished and tainted by the effects of sin and the constant cycles of pain, exhaustion, weariness, I think we all find ourselves in those seasons when we're at work or at home, just constant cycles of, of tiredness and exhaustion. God essentially tells Adam, you're going to work hard for everything that you want for all the days of your life until you die. My dad would always caution me with, I brought you into this world. I can surely take you out of it. I think this is a good picture of what God is telling Adam. God created Adam. He formed him in Genesis 1 and 2 with his own hands from the dust. Uh, God is, is ultimately the one that dicta dictates our conception, and God is ultimately the one that dictates our demise in our final days. So now let's look at the good part, the redemption. At the conclusion of God's judgment on Adam, we see the first mention of the woman's name. Up until uh, the end, or towards the middle and end of Genesis 3, the name Eve, does, Eve is never mentioned. I thought that was interesting. Um, Adam gives her the name Eve at the end of Genesis 3. In response to God's judgment, Adam could have acted irrationally. He could have acted bitter towards God. He could have acted angry towards God because of the curse. But ultimately, he trusted in the Lord's promise. And he named Eve, he gave the name Eve her name because Eve means life. It means mother of the living. So Adam believed in the promise that Eve would deliver children, and they would deliver children, and they would deliver children. 
and then we get to the, the promise of our Savior. After Adam named Eve, the Lord showed compassion to them and made them garments of skin as clothing. Where does he get this skin? Have you ever thought about that? When he created garments of skin for them. Ultimately, I think the first, the first death of an animal happened right in front of Adam and Eve's eyes. Yeah, Adam and Eve's eyes. Could you imagine what they would feel like after God curses them, after, after God curses the, the snake, he curses them, he, he gives them a bunch of judgments, and then he murders an animal in front of their very eyes. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sins. We must be covered by and atoned for by the substitutionary blood of Christ. Christ lived a death that we should have lived and died a death that we should have died. He was our substitute. He stood in our place. He was the one that was bruised on our behalf. One of my favorite modern songs is You Loved My Heart to Death by Shane and Shane. I'd, I'd encourage you to take a look at it um, this week. But in the lyrics, the song goes, All the wrath of God that I deserved with every breath fell upon him, and he loved my heart to death. I think that's really beautiful. Just the love of Christ in the midst of fallen humanity. So, in closing, Advent would have no significance if Jesus simply came into the world, lived a normal life, died a normal death. But the significance of Advent is found by the extraordinary life that Jesus lived from a virgin birth his sinless life, his burial, his death, and his resurrection, his glorious resurrection. And then we all get to look forward to his second coming. And that's where we find ourselves, in between the two advents. So let's, uh, in closing, let's, let's pray, and then we'll start uh, our, our response time.